Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What I mean by that is we're going to be taking a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're also going to be taking a look at the things that were going on in the world at the time of the original broadcast. And then we're also going to take a deeper dive into something that catches our eye. And whose eyes am I talking about? I'm talking about my eyes, my beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I have written some books that include science fiction, such as Man in the Empty Suit. With me is my brother, Matthew. He is the tech guru and main brain behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Say hello, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. That joke never gets old. It, well. <laughs> or, or maybe it does. <laughs> Today, we're talking about episode seven of Enterprise, The Andorian Incident. This was directed by Roxanne Dawson, and it was broadcast originally on Halloween, October 31st, 2001. It was viewed by 7.19 million people. So Which what was the a, world? It's a, it's a drop from the previous ones, right? That was one of the things I wanted to mention is that the episode viewership declines from the very first episode to this point. It has dropped every week. I think it may have perked up in one episode, maybe the episode before this one. Um, but overall it is a decline in viewership, which yeah. is something that I think we can speculate on as we move forward. It's, it's, um, in this episode in particular, uh, we'll get into it in more detail, but this is an episode that I really kind of pity the fact that yes. its viewership was down when the episode is so much stronger than pretty much all of the ones that preceded it. It's their best episode yet. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So what was the world like when this episode aired? Well, as we mentioned, first of all, it was Halloween. It was October 31st, 2001. And the number one song in the land? Matt, <laughs> can you guess what it was? Could it be Alicia Keys' Fallen? As a matter of fact, it was. Surprise, oh, wow. surprise. Our regular listeners up to this point may be shocked to find out that the song is still fallen. That's right. It hasn't yet fallen. <laughs> and once again, we have a new movie. There have been a number of number one films as we've moved through the first seven episodes of Enterprise. And this week, it's another new one. It's K-Pax. K-Pax is the 2001 American-German science fiction mystery film based on Gene Brewer's 1995 novel of the same name. And this, of course, starred Kevin Spacey, Jeff Bridges, Mary McCormick, and Alfred Woodard. And I'm sorry, another, I can't another, see Kevin Spacey show up on anything without thinking, no. okay, it's... Uh, no, don't don't look for this film. Don't watch this film. Don't support this film. But it's Kevin also another Spacey. film on the list of all the ones we've been going through. That's kind of like a, that came out. What? what? It's yeah. like, it took me a minute to go K-Pax. What is K-Pax? And I had to go find the trail and be like, oh, oh yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> there's like a string of these movies over the, over the show that have just been surprising. Yeah. It's like an alternate universe we're living in. 
going through some of these. There have been films. a couple that were definitely alternate universe films for me. Yeah. K-Pax is not one of them. K-Pax is one that stood out for me at the time as being, well, this sounds incredibly bad. Yeah. And it sticks out for me for that reason. It was memorably a bad idea to me and was uninteresting to me. And in hindsight now, all the things that have come out about Kevin Spacey in the years in between, I'm just like, all right, let's, <laughs> let's put that in a vault. <laughs> let's let's wait for Geraldo to try and open it up. So this episode also had some stiff competition. The week that this episode aired, the top viewed thing on television was World Series Game 7. The Yankees losing to the Diamondbacks. And to give you a little window into how much time has passed since then, Derek Jeter has been inducted into the Hall of Fame just, <laughs> just this month. So <laughs> as we are recording this, Enough time has passed that Derek Jeter is now a Hall of Famer. And from the headlines, the New York Times was still investigating the ongoing anthrax scare. Hospital workers' illness suggests widening threat. And we also saw the continuation of the post-9-11, the, the war drums beating as the U.S. was gearing up to basically invade Afghanistan. At this point... The headline around that story was special forces in Afghanistan are aiding rebels against the sitting government of the Taliban. It's And the front page also included an image of then-President George Bush throwing out the first pitch <laughs> in game three. So he was out there trying to put a good face on some normalcy while all of the U.S. was still shuddering under the impact of 9-11 and the anthrax scare. Yeah, it's th th this continuing thread of what's going on in the world at the time that these episodes were made to me is just there's like such a dissonance between what the show is about and what they're yeah. kind of going with versus what was happening in the world at that time. And the dissonance is because the show was written and filmed way before any of this happened. So the reflection of what was going on in the world didn't actually show up. We'll be getting to it, but it starts that starts to show yeah. up in season two, which I think is kind of fascinating because you can see how the world view impacts where the show ends up going after this first right. season. But for this first season, there's just nothing but like a dissonance between <laughs> what's in the headlines and what's going on in the show. Yeah. It's, it's a jarring thing to know that the idealism of Star Trek going all the way back to Roddenberry's first statements of it is it is a unified humanity mm -hmm. and that idealism is has always been in conflict you think about the the era that the original star trek was coming out in uh was post assassination of martin luther king um robert kennedy civil rights strife like a putting a hopeful edge to all of what is going on around you and looking at a, at a distant future where, where humanity's put its, its strife behind it has always been a part of Star Trek. But while actively, I guess Vietnam would have been a comparable, comparable thing in the sixties, the, while actively in, in the, the path of getting ready for war, it seems very, it's a tension that makes some of the statements within the show seem mm -hmm. almost fantastic. Yeah. And at the same time, I couldn't help but think, well, and this episode's a good example of it. 
the kind of strife that they are talking about and how do you build bridges has been projected onto other races, other species mm-hmm. from other planets. So mm-hmm. humanity is unified. Okay. But they don't like these aliens and yeah. back to tension, back to storytelling that we, that we expect from basically any myth. So Matt, you want to jump in real quick and tell us what the synopsis of this episode was. Sure. Uh, Captain Archer and Commander Tucker, after finding that the Vulcan star maps are incomplete, they talk to talk to Sub-Commander T'Pol into taking a trip to Pajem. It's a Vulcan monastery. And when they arrive there, they find that the monastery has unwelcome guests, the Andorians. <laughs> Thank you for putting the right emphasis on the Andorians. Yes. <laughs> so the episode starts with Captain Archer and trip looking at star charts and uh archer is looking at them with to paul and points out that there are some things in there that are appear to be missing and i i liked the i liked this introduction because it kind of underscores the fact that the vulcan star charts may be less reflective of curiosity as a for as opposed to purposeful exploration Mm-hmm. That's one of the debates that kind of comes up in these first lines is we don't follow curiosity. And so when Trip and Archer recognize that there's something that potentially there are gaps here, uh, it, it brings their desire to visit this, this monastery, which is on the route and, Paul describes it as an ancient retreat where it's a place for Colinar and Colinar to jump both forward and backward at the same time. Colinar is going to be the practice that Spock is trying to use in, in particular um, it will be something that is referred to in, I believe in discovery, but it's also a key component of Spock in Star Trek, the motion picture where Spock has gone into isolation and is practicing Colinar to remove the last vestiges of his human emotional side. So this is, I think, a very nice utilization of ongoing Star Trek lore that at this point is old lore, embedding it into this being the human's first experience with it. Yeah. T'Pol explains the protocols around the visit, that there's going to be some ceremonial stuff that they should not expect any kind of warm welcome whatsoever. Basically, it's it's one of the problems I had with this, Matt. Maybe you had something similar. The humans are being very rude. About just coming in and saying, hey. About just basically saying, like, no, we should be allowed to come in. But but at the same time, I kind of wanted to bring it. It's not in the description of the plot, but there's a scene between T'Pol and Flocks that happens before they actually go. Yeah. Because T'Pol is, I don't want to do this. What's the point of doing this? This is stupid. And she's having like dinner with Flocks. And I love his character so much because he's kind of like this, just this wonderful in between the Vulcan and the human dissonance sits flocks who just does a wonderful job of always kind of reminding whoever he's talking to what the real heart of the matter is. And Mm -hmm. he's just, 
you know, chomping away at his food and she's sitting there trying to cut her carrots and stuff like with her fork and knife. Mm-hmm. And he just reaches over and grabs one. Oh, can I have one of these? And he's chewing with his mouth open. He's being really kind of just like, ah, and he reminds her, he says, so remind me, what's the point of our mission? And you can tell he's got this, like, he's about to like put her in, into a logistical box of like, right. like using logic against her. Yeah. And when he basically forces her to reiterate what their mission is, which is to, you know, go out and explore and learn. Yeah. And, and she basically reiterates that. And he's basically forces her to recognize, no, you really should be doing this because this is why we're out here. Right. And it was just a wonderful scene of just his character kind of putting her in a box and forcing her to recognize that she needs to open her mind a little bit and, and expand her horizons and help her crewmates achieve their mission. Yeah. I just love and not only does scene. he do it using, using uh, logic, but yeah. he does it utilizing a Vulcan principle of Idic, which is infinite yes. diversity and infinite co- combinations, which yeah. he points out to her, isn't the human exploration of something even in Vulcan history. Yeah. Isn't that the very principle of the Idic, which is this has never happened before. This yeah. is, there's a moment here that you can foster. And I agree. It's a, it's a, it's one of those side conversations that takes place in hopefully every episode has, has something similar. There's usually, there's usually a key in every episode that unlocks some character a little bit. And in this Mm -hmm. one, it's definitely to Paul who gets unlocked and, and there, that moment is a positive unlocking, but her character in particular has moments throughout this episode where the bell keeps getting rung of it is challenging her understanding of the of her world and she's being challenged again and again and again through this episode to really open her eyes and look at things boldly and at face value and understand what is actually happening but that's part of why i kind of tie back to i disagree with you i don't think the humans are just being rude because if you look at what they're trying to do, they're like, we're trying to learn and experience new things. We've never experienced this. And we will we'll abide whatever rules you set forth. We just want to see it. It's like, can you just help us see this? It's like, I didn't think there was anything wrong with them asking. The way they're portrayed is they're kind of bumbling about it. But at the same time, I didn't think it was a, a, a dissonant uh, thing that they were doing. It wasn't weird to me. So the Enterprise arrives at Pajem and... The away team consists of Archer and Trip and T'Pol. And T'Pol is giving them some subtle guidance as they enter and is dismissive at first. I thought it was interesting that she's dismissive of what clearly looks like damage yes. to the monastery. <laughs> yeah. um, we've already seen a, a, basically the show open is the monastery being attacked. Yes. And so we know that there's been an attack. We know that Andorians have stormed this Vulcan uh, refuge. And so when they arrive and she's dismissive of, well, of course, this thing is very old. The door, you can't expect the doors to be in pristine condition. And it's like, no, that looks like somebody just kicked it <laughs> yeah, in. That's a fresh that, crack. <laughs> that looks like somebody <laughs> broke that yeah. yesterday. And then they go into the main entryway and there are some statues that are knocked over. And there's an interesting explanation as to why. Yes. But that scene, this scene is probably my favorite moment in the entire show. And the reason for that is it's, it's the perfect show. Don't tell show. Don't tell. And 
there's this unspoken thing that happens between T'Pol, Trip, and the captain in this sequence because she's standing there and she's kind of looking perplexed and she's like, there's a statue off kilter and there's something else that looks out of place. And she clearly is recognizing something's a little weird here. And the captain recognizes the look on her face of like, what's wrong? And she says, that would never be like that. And it was just like this unspoken moment of the captain and trip immediately going, okay. And they become the obnoxious American tourist. And it was like, it was fantastic because it was, they were being very polite, abiding what, what she had told them to do. But as soon as it was clear that there's something a little off, yeah. the two of them just jump into action and start bund- you know, bumbling around being just these obnoxious humans deliberately to try to figure yeah. out what's going on. And it was this unspoken communication between all of them that was so crystal clear in this moment of the show. I was like, I love it because they've, they've only, yeah. this is what episode seven, right? Yeah. It's like, we're only, we're only seven episodes in. But they've been out in space for months and they've been getting to know each other and they're knowing how to read each other. And it was just a wonderful way to show that they're already building that camaraderie between all of them, that they have an unspoken way that they can kind of work together. And even to reflect back on key moments that they have had on screen where we the viewer have seen them. Yes. I go back to the episode where Trip was having the hallucinogenic experience from the pollen Mm -hmm. and he and T'Pol had to get past that. He and T'Pol had to get past his horrendous paranoia and threatening nature around her in particular, but Vulcans at large. Mm-hmm. And then you see this moment where they're reading the situation properly and T'Pol will never jump into the investigative mode that Archer and Trip do. Yeah. But in that moment, there is an understanding, as you're, as you're referring to, that they've gotten past some of those harder moments. Well, it's like and she I never think, tries to stop them. So it's right. kind of like she knows something's wrong and she's just letting them do what they're about to do because she knows what they're going to try. And she's, right. she's, she's okay with them doing this because it's that communication going back and forth right. where it wasn't her kind of looking like, oh God, what are these guys doing? It was like, okay, you guys go do what you're going to do. So as Matt just mentioned, Archer and Trip are stumbling around in uh, the lounge, the the entry area, trying to figure out what might be going on. They catch a reflection of an Andorian hiding behind a uh, a wall. There's a brief scuffle. And then even though they are able to subdue that person behind the wall, the rest of the Andorians storm the entryway led by Commander Shran. The humans and T'Pol are all taken captive they are put in where the the monks of the monastery are all being held and shran begins to interrogate archer it's basically just a beating Mm -hmm. the questions revolving around where are the listening devices where is the spy technology this vulcan monastery is a key part of keeping an eye on andoria and the distrust is slowly revealed between vulcan and Andorian is apparently a decades-long issue. And the Andorians are described largely as being very uh, distrustful, paranoid, and jealous of Vulcan technology, which the Vulcans refuse to share. So it's set up quickly as the Andorians have a longer experience with Vulcans than the humans do, but the tensions are somewhat similar. Yes. And 
one of the things about the relationship here that I really like is that Andorians as a alien species within Star Trek lore have been in Star Trek lore up to this point. They are part of what is considered the history of the Federation, but they've never really been explored. And this is the first time we're seeing that. This is the first time we're really getting a sense of what does Andorian culture look like? How do Andorians see themselves in the pantheon? How do they see their relationships with various species? They very quickly develop a shorthand for humans, calling them pink skins, which (laughs) there's a racial problem with that, big picture wise, which I, I think is a sensitivity we need to be, we need to acknowledge, but at the same time, like, okay, the writers of the show maybe were being a little insensitive to the overall color of humanity, but the point being that the Andorians are quickly looking at humans as something other and quickly relegating them to this almost lapdog position when it comes to the relationship with the Vulcans. They, they clearly are seeing humanity as, well, you serve the Vulcan need. So your ship, which has weapons, it has armaments, it shows up here at what is supposed to be a peaceful monastery, starts to look weird. And from two cultures, the Vulcans have said, we don't go places out of curiosity. And the Andorians are clearly out under a military activity uh, practice. The human stated reason for being there, we just want to see what's out here does sound bizarre. ridiculous yeah yeah it does sound ridiculous so when enterprise attempts to contact the away team shran warns the enterprise not to interfere destroys the communicators there's the interrogation which is ongoing and again and again archer is taken in and he's basically being beaten beaten to a pulp uh every time archer returns to the room where everybody's being held prisoner the there's Tension between then all the prisoners, the humans, Trip and Archer keep saying to the Vulcans, like, you, what is the point of letting them come in every few months, beat the crap out of you, and then leave? It basically pushing the idea of like, your peaceful resistance isn't working. You need to do something in order to force their hand to get them out of here. And reluctantly, the monks reveal that there is a transmitter which is in the catacombs beneath the monastery. Tucker is led to find this transporter by one of the monks who is very clearly like, we need to go over here. We need to go over here. We shouldn't go down this hallway. We should go over this hallway. And I felt like that was a little too leading for the viewer. It was, it was a little too on the nose, but at the same time, it was interesting that they were trying what they were trying to do because it's like the Vulcans are nothing but logic and so everything that they're being we've seen as the viewer in this episode up to this point fits with what we know of vulcans of like they're just super logical and they'll come in here they'll beat the crap out of us a little bit and then they'll leave so why even fight it's like it doesn't make any sense they'll just scurry away so there's a there's a logic to that that makes sense because it's like why why fight them which will just escalate the thing just let them do what they're going to do and they'll leave uh but this is the first kind of clumsy attempt to kind of hint to the viewer there's something unusual going on here and the Andorians might have a leg to stand on. Like there's something hinky going on. I do agree it's a little on the nose, but I did like what they were trying to do. They were, you know, 
trying to it's like those those scenes where you watch a tv show where it's just like this kind of like it it looks like it's a real thing but then there's something just a little off and it turns out oh it's a dream that i'm in and the person wakes up it's like it felt right. like they were trying to do something like that that was a little subtle hint but it was definitely not a subtle hint it was like don't go down that hallway it's like okay there's something down that hallway it's Chekhov's yeah. gun it's like you know, yeah <laughs> you know there's gonna be something down that hallway yeah there's got to be something down that hallway yeah. yeah i also thought that it was one of the things that stood out for me in the episode that worked really really well was archer and trip's experience of the monastery and looking at it from the perspective of of prisoners and mm-hmm. it taking on a kind of great escape level like plan of looking at the whole area and really saying like, okay, if that hallway goes down there and I see a light coming through that wall, then that must put it underneath the entryway. Mm-hmm. And if it's underneath the entryway and we can get through that wall, then we can get out or help can get in and really beginning to plot how this entire escape or at least pushback can take place while also needing to get help from enterprise. I thought that the, the placing of and doing it visibly through, as opposed to somebody saying, well, you know, there is an escape hatch. It showed up out the back. It's, it's literally Archer looking through a dark hallway and saying, I see some lights. And then they keep showing in the entryway, the giant mask sculpture on the wall. And the more they show that, the more it's sending to the viewer. Like there's a relationship between this and that and doing it visibly in that way. I thought it was a very good storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and that rests with the director who you know, I, I mentioned is, is Roxanne Dawson. Uh, people will remember her as Belana Torres from Voyager. So this is, she is no newcomer to Star Trek but she's already demonstrating great directing chops, I think. And we'll talk a little bit more about her as a director a little bit later. But they basically are able to get a message to Enterprise. They're able to put together the, the beginnings of an escape plan. And it involves making sure that the Enterprise can use the teleporter to beam people into the, the tunnels. And when they start the escape slash fight back, uh, it turns into pursuit through the catacombs. The, the, once the, the catacombs are revealed to Shran, Shran escapes into them. He's able to get deeper and he follows the path that the Vulcan earlier basically told Trip, Oh, no, 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 don't go down there. And he goes right down there. A firefight breaks out in a chamber that looks like it's full of antiques. It looks, yeah. it's called a reliquy and it's, and it basically just looks like it's full of nothing until suddenly a phaser hits a tapestry and what looks like a brand new door is <laughs> revealed behind the tapestry. At which point Archer decides, well, let's really reveal this thing because Archer's one of the things throughout the entire episode is that Archer really does begin to question the, the full argument that the Vulcans are making. Like he's recognizing that there's something else going on here. What is going on here reveals the door, opens the door and then calls for a ceasefire and then invites the Andorians over to take a look. And lo and behold, behind the door, they find a massive Vulcan listening station that is clearly spying 
on Andoria. The scene that follows is this is where the bell is ringing for the final time in the episode for T'Pol. The first time is her sitting with Flocks having the meal. The next big time is her during the night sitting with Archer and Archer saying, like, you got to get into this blanket. It's too cold. Inviting her under the blanket and they have a conversation basically about what is the experience like and her experience with the humans the head of the monastery keeps saying, how can you basically be around them for this length of time? They smell. <laughs> they smell bad. It's yeah. it's similar to later conversations in other shows where people talk about Klingons. Yeah. It's they're viewing humans the way that humans view Klingons. And her response, she is clearly conflicted in that nighttime scene. She is working with humans who she is beginning to trust. And she's mm-hmm. beginning to understand in a way that the monks can't. The monks are, of course, supposed to be emblematic of the Vulcan ideal, completely emotionless, nothing but logic. And the conflict for her in that moment is interesting because it's this, well, these humans are supposed to be brash, animalistic, not so sophisticated in their approach to the world. And yet the things that the monks are doing don't seem to be working. And there's that leap in logic. If what they're doing isn't working, why are they doing it? And the final bell ring is this moment at the end when they are all standing looking at this listening station, which is depicted, I think, beautifully. The CGI Mm -hmm. in this is beautifully done because it looks massive. Yeah. And you see Vulcan officers walking in the distance and very calmly turn and look at this group that is standing at the doorway and Archer invites complete scans by to Paul and then effectively orders her to hand them over to Shrek. Cause it's a break and, in the treaty Shran. between, it's a break in yeah. the treaty between the Endorians and the Vulcans. The Vulcans are breaking their treaty, right? Which is, you can understand from a logical point of view, probably how they logic their way into doing this. Sure. But it's it's a, it's also interesting to see how deeply it affects T'Pol. And it's kind of broken her. This is the episode where I think it breaks her, um, not trust, but it, it breaks something about her vision of what Vulcans are. Yes. And so now it's basically rocked her world. And so from this point forward, it's going to be interesting to watch how suddenly she is not on the sides of humans, but she's more open to exploring a different way to view the world essentially and And that's what i think is is the through line between the the meal scene the nighttime conversation around what's the point of doing all of this if all it does is continue to the monastery continues to limp along and be abused by these people what's the logic there Mm -hmm. and the final scene being the logic of their suffering in the monastery was to continue to put a good face on the Vulcans and make the Vulcans look like the weaker and victimized party. And in reality, they were breaking the treaty and that moment where she hands over the scanner and then you get a beautiful moment of Shran looking at Archer and muttering, I'm in your debt. And that moment of, okay, this is, you know, as a viewer who already knows what's coming, I already know this is a character who's going to come back and Mm -hmm. I love it. 
I love I love that the Andorian storyline. I love the ongoing conflict between Tran and Archer and the Vulcans. And I loved this being the beginning of T'Pol, like you said, questioning Vulcans' depiction of what they are versus mm-hmm. the reality of what they are. And as you said, there's got to be all sorts of logistical arguments that have taken place as to why the Vulcan government has taken these act, actions yeah. that they have. But what works in this episode is the sowing of distrust of the Vulcans writ large and the missing information on the star charts, star charts now looks more suspicious. Yeah. There was the initial argument of Vulcans don't go somewhere out of curiosity. And yet here they are in the end of the episode revealed to, they are doing something. If it's not curiosity, what is it? It's distrust. So it's basically laying out a vision of, okay, Vulcans don't go places out of curiosity, but maybe they act out of paranoia, distrust, all logically arrived at, but they're they're conducting bad acts. Yeah. And the, Final thing is the growing trust between T'Pol and Archer. T'Pol yeah. does not argue about handing over the scanner. In that moment, like, like you said earlier in the episode, her understanding of, oh, Trip and Archer are about to do something, and she lets it happen. And in this moment, she has to be the one to take action, but she does. Yeah. And I think that's a nice moment. It's, it's also not, this is going to take a, sharp left turn but one of the things that happened throughout the episode that i thought was fun it was just fun was reed who's in command of the enterprise during this entire thing and reed has trying to get the rescue plan put together and i love there's all this reference that like on the planet when he and i mean archer and trip are talking about well reed's in command he's not going to wait too long before he yeah. starts sending unarmed guys <laughs> yeah. and it's like i just like the the comments of like he's he's a man of action and I also liked on the ship, whenever they were showing Reed, Reed numerous times in the episode said, maybe that should be a standard procedure. You know, yeah. we, you know, we, maybe we, it's like you can start to see like all yeah. of these seeds of the of the, the things that we know from every Star Trek series after this. It's like you can see that they're laying the groundwork for all that here. And I loved it's it's a little on the nose, but it was just fun. It's it's fun to it's see a little Reed on the nose, but I think it, it was yeah. overdue because they had the previous episode that we, you and I talked about where it was them going down and being exposed to the pollen. Yeah. And they followed no procedures whatsoever. It was and like Reed, they Reed took basically the dog sent, on the yeah. shuttle down with them. And yeah. it was all these things that you and I in our discussion were like, they seem to be going out of their way, showing them stumbling forward and causing all these problems as a defense of why there should be protocols. Yes. And this one for him to literally be saying, well, maybe we should be scanning these people first. Maybe yes. we shouldn't just be flying up and beaming people down. Maybe we should make sure we know what's going on before yeah. we step into a place. I do, I do really like that. There's yeah. also uh, a quick aside. There's the scene, I really like the scene when they're getting ready to beam down and take their actions. Yes. <laughs> and one of the crewmen is just like, I've heard these things this. go bad. I th- yeah. I've heard these things might not work. And and Reed basically saying, like, you've got to get on this platform. We are going. You are getting up here. This is your job. In that moment, I was like, I recognize that crewman. And I looked him up, and it turns out it was Jamie McShane, who has had a long career uh, being in a number of different shows and movies. He's been on everything, including House, Stalker, Fear the Walking Dead, The Fosters. And his most notable role 
was as Cameron Hayes in Sons of Anarchy and Sergeant Terry Hill in Southland. He was also in the show Bloodline. Uh, and he's going to have a recurring role in CSI Vegas. So this, in that moment, I, it was one of his very first credits. I was looking at him and thinking, he looks like a very young version of somebody I actually know from television. And it turned out it was, it was Mr. McShane. So going into my deep dive on this episode, I wanted to talk about two things in particular. First of all, Roxanne Dawson's directing, I think, in this episode is terrific. There's lots of great mood created in the monastery, especially in the tunnel sequences. Of course, in a show like any of the Star Trek shows, they are reusing sets yeah. all over the place. It's like, here's a fake rock wall and here's a fake rock ceiling. And if we turn this piece around, it'll look different than it did in the last episode. So they've got all their caves and their tunnels being used again in this episode that I'm sure they've used in a number of different episodes. She does some very interesting things, very similar to what LeVar Burton did in a previous episode, coming up with interesting angles, interesting ways of setting up lights to create some really highlighting moments, Uh, especially, as I mentioned, the sculpted face on the wall in the entryway and how from the other side it reveals where the tunnels are leading and how they're being used. I also really liked the performance that she got out of to Paul for the episode and Shran. I thought that she did a really neat job with him. Shran, of course, is Jeffrey Combs, who mm-hmm. is, he's been in, in a bunch of TV shows. He's been in a bunch of movies. This is not his only Star Trek credit. He's Andorian Commander Shran, but he's also appeared previously in Deep Space Nine. Wayun. Um, and he played Wayun who is one of my favorite characters from yes. Deep Space Nine. Yep. And he also played a Ferengi named Brunt. Combs, for this role, he was offered the role without an audition. And before he accepted, he wanted to know more. And he was told that the character was an Andorian and that he would not die in this episode. And he later said that this role was a gift and that it was a very different type of character that he got to play. He said, quote, I got to play a captain, someone with a real chip on his shoulder. And he liked to imagine the role as James Cagney, huh. as a tough little guy who holds his ground, and you've got to go through him, not around him. And I think that that is a great description of how the character is played. Uh, Combs's experience on television, he played a bunch of aliens in various Star Trek and including Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He's had nine different on-screen roles in the Star Trek universe. He's one of their favorite side character actors. And I thought it was interesting to read that at one point it was suggested that this character, if the Enterprise had gone on to a fifth season, there was Mm -hmm. some talk of this character becoming a regular. Oh, wow. Which... I think it would have been very interesting to see where that would have gone. Um, So my takeaway for this episode is this, you can't have an episode like this be your pilot because it takes a while to get a series to a place where the writers, the directors, the actors are all like, Oh, we, we kind of see how these things all begin to fit together. And we, we know what we're trying to develop and we've got kind of an arc of where we're trying to head. So it's unfortunate that an episode like this can't be your pilot. Yeah. 
But if you got somebody who's never seen enterprise and they're interested in dipping their toe and they're not all that interested in seeing each and every episode, I would think that this is the episode that somebody should start with. Yeah, I agree. That's a really good recommendation. This, like I said, this is the best episode they've had. We're only seven episodes in, but this is hands down the best one. And I think it's because they're starting to dive into something that we've never seen before in the show, which is like you said, the Andorians. It's like if you're a Star Trek nerd, you know, the Andorians, the Vulcans were two of the original species in the Federation, but we know nothing about them. So as yep. soon as you bring them into the show, it's kind of like, even though it's a prequel from what we've seen in the past, it's all new because we know nothing about them. So there's, there's a lot of fun to be had on top of just good performances, good directing, good writing. So this is, to me, a hands-down recommendation too, especially if you're not interested in every single episode. It's especially important to remember that at this point in Star Trek history, if you have experienced the other shows, for a brand new viewer, if I was to bring my 15-year-old son into the room and say, watch this show called Enterprise, and if he didn't know anything about the the previous incarnations of star trek a brand new viewer would say okay i don't know any of the relationships between humans and any of these species yeah but for somebody who's old and grizzled and angry and tired the way you and i are we come into this and we say well we know the klingons aren't (laughs) going to be friends we know the vulcans are going to be you need to have that element that gives you some purpose to telling the story yep and the andorians are that And what's frustrating for me from a storytelling perspective is this is episode seven. We've seen a bunch of episodes previous to this, which were basically all bottle episodes to a large degree. Yep. Other than references to, oh, we're new out here. A lot of the episodes were, oh, they come to a planet, a thing happens, they experience something, then they leave. This is the first one that says, oh, We've come to a planet. We've had some interactions. There's a different relationship here between us and the people that we've just experienced this with, and that's going to develop over time. The pilot suggested something like that, but it has not, up to this point, carried through on that at all. Good point. All the stuff that the pilot promoted as there's an ongoing time cold war that is somebody in the future or maybe the past doing things that are causing problems. There's this new alien race you've never seen before that seems to have all these mystical powers because of tech bred into their bodies and they are changing themselves to be able to do these things. And we haven't seen them since. Yes, I know. It's, it's a major And trouble. nobody has even yeah. talked about it. Yeah. And this is not me as a fan wishing that they would somehow develop the ability to tell an ongoing larger story arc with sequential storytelling. At this point, Deep Space Nine ended with basically a four-year-long story arc. Yes, it did. They knew how to do it. They know how to do it. Yep. Voyager started to, to my frustration, get away from it. They didn't do it as much as I wish they had but they still did have elements in there where it's okay. There was a little bit of a larger arc every once in a while it would resurface, not as much as I'd hoped, but it was still there. But at this point, seven episodes in, it feels very much like the writers and producers are still kind of like, what are we trying to do here? And this is the first episode where it feels like, Oh, they've got a foothold. They really, they've got something here. This is the point of the show. 
the relationship between these three species stands out as this is an interesting tension. And we know that the humans and the Vulcans end up in a good place. So the question becomes, how do the Andorians fit into all of this? Right. So next time we'll be investigating the episode Breaking the Ice. Matt, any speculation as to what they're going to be doing in that episode? I think they're going to be taking ice, breaking it. Hmm. Maybe they'll find a woolly mammoth. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Could happen. Little frozen, little frozen mastodon in the ice there? Well, let's find <laughs> out. Before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have going on in your podcasting world? In my podcasting world, it's just that uh, I have another show called Vice Versa that I do with uh, Ricky from 2-Bit Da Vinci. Uh, we talk about the news of the week when it comes to sustainable energy and things like that. Uh, EVs. It's a fun show. Check it out. And as for me, you can check out my website. It's seanfarrell.com. You can also look for my books at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or even your local bookstore. They are available everywhere, and I hope people will check them out. And if anybody has any comments or corrections, please reach out. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes or on YouTube. You can just scroll down to the comment section, and you can blast us right there. We are more than willing to hear comments such as one from our very first episode. We are happy to have people checking us out. And there have been a number of people who've said, Sean, you talk too much. <laughs> we get it. We're working on it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>